Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world in the European Council and Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to be doing another emergency episode. On Saturday morning, Hamas carried out an unprecedented surprise attack on Israel, firing thousands of rockets, but also infiltrating towns, kibbutzim, and cities in southern Israel. The first time that a hostile power has taken Israeli territory since the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Over 700 Israelis have been killed, and dozens are reported to have been taken back to Gaza hostages. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has declared a state of war and has promised to cripple Hamas mercilessly. What explains this spectacular Israeli intelligence failure? What sort of response can we expect from Israel? How high is the danger of a, of a regional conflagration? And what should Europeans do in these circumstances? I'm happy to welcome an all-star cast to help us make sense of these horrifying events. Down the line from Israel, we have um, Eran Etzion, who is a diplomat and strategist of more than 20 years' experience. He used to be the deputy head of the National Security Council in the Israeli Prime Minister's office. He was a uh, head of policy planning at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and is currently a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. Also uh, joining us down the line is Hugh Lovett, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And also back to the podcast is Julian Barnes-Stacey, who is the director of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program. So, um, Iran, maybe we can go to you first. You've been living through these horrendous uh, events um, and uh, experiencing the, the, the way that Israelis um, have been rocked by, by what's going on. Um, maybe we can just start with your sense of, of what exactly um, uh, has happened and your kind of sense of, 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 of how this sort of um, con- extraordinary set of events uh, erupted um, and why the uh, Israeli system seemed to be so taken by surprise. Yes. Hi, good evening. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. The country is in state, a state of shock, and I think uh, nobody is excluded from this overall uh, sense of emergency and unprecedented national crises. Uh, no matter what is your age, no matter where you live in this country, the, because it's a relatively small country and social, so, social circles are pretty tight, practically everybody knows somebody at least who was you know, either killed, injured, uh, whose families bereaved and so on. Frankly, uh, I just came back from Eshiva, which is the uh, Jewish uh, consolation period immediately after a death. Uh, the, actually, it's horrific, but you know, just to give a sense to our listeners... Um, it's a good, a good friend of mine. From we met each other during the protests against the uh, Netanyahu government, and uh, both his parents were killed in uh, one of the kibbutzim near Gaza uh, in horrific circumstances that I don't even care to to describe. So I just came back from his home with uh, you know virtually hundreds of people coming to console the family and so on. And this is not unusual, and this is the kind of atmosphere that we that we were now surrounded with. 
to go into the uh, directly into the kind of strategic explanation and geostrategic explanation of what's going on um, my take is the following what uh, was broken is much more than simply uh, an, an intelligence system or an IDF operation around Gaza those broke too but these are secondary or tertiary uh, manifestations of a much much deeper crisis and And a little bit like 9/11 you know all it beats all comparisons okay it's it's not like you can easily compare it to to our 1973 catastrophe the so-called Yom Kippur or October war it doesn't uh, compare easily also to 9/11 even though there are you know perhaps bits and pieces that do bear some similarity but um, ultimately what's going on here is a, is a very unique set of circumstances on the strategic level Uh, operational and tactic level and on the strategic level and this again I'm trying to kind of a, a go, approach it from the widest possible which to me for us as, as you know foreign policy or strategist professionals uh, I, I think that's always the way to go and trying to put your head together uh, put your head around something as as complex as this you should begin with the uh, overarching concepts that guided the On the Israeli side and essentially I would pick uh, two one was the concept that uh, Netanyahu developed and implemented in the last 10 months which was to take Israel to an unpre- through an unprecedented regime change the so-called uh, judicial coup um, knowing full well that uh, it will have severe national security implications and It will weaken the IDF it will break the trust between the uh, shall we say the most constructive productive elite echelons of the Israeli defense establishment the Israeli high-tech sector the Israeli financial system and the government and the state institutions um, Netanyahu knew that he was breaking those institutions and breaking the trust of between the wider population the this side of the uh, uh, shall we say political spectrum in Israel which essentially is not his political base and he did it in in full conscious and what was broken is the his um, illusion that he can do all that and uh, when push comes to shove and if there is an attack from the outside the army will function and The intelligence system will function the reservists will show up and everything will be business as usual and he did that even though he was warned speaking about intelligence you know because already everybody's talking about another intelligence failure it's not entirely correct because there was a strategic alert given by both the military intelligence and Mossad and Shabak to Netanyahu on multiple occasions in writing and uh, orally and And it was transmitted in a paraphrase to the Israeli public as well that because of this judicial coup, um, the temptation for the Iranians, Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Israel's enemies at large to attack Israel is, is growing, um, uh, growing and growing, essentially. And this was transmitted to Netanyahu multiple times since more or less March. this year and he not only chose to ignore it he even fired 
his defense minister, Yoav Gallant, for trying to bring this news to him. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. So that's the concept that was broken, number one. The second concept is the um, overall approach, again, that Netanyahu developed to the Palestinian conflict at large and specifically towards Gaza. And this was a concept of multiple separations and divisions, separation between Gaza and the West Bank and separation between the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israeli-Arab conflict. And as I'm sure our listeners are aware, his entire story around the Abraham Accords and around the alleged uh, forthcoming normalization agreement with the Saudis was we're going to solve, we're going to resolve the Israeli-Arab conflict without touching the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and thus kind of circumventing the Palestinian issue in a so-called smart way, which will allow it essentially to either dissolve, resolve itself, or whatnot. But the basic notion is, you know, we're not going to deal with Israel-Palestine. We're going to negate any kind of negotiations. We're going to feed Hamas with money and supplies and legitimacy in return for relative calm and those military rounds that we saw every so-and-so years or months. And this was the concept. And now it collapsed. So these are the two kind of major strategic concepts that collapsed in one day. And it is an enormous strategic surprise for everyone. Nobody thought it was going to be, you know, that kind of devastation, that kind of a, that, that scope and depth and, and uh, you know, immense proportion of damage, casualties, uh, psychological victory, and so on. And just to end this, uh, this opening statement, I would say that in my mind, there is exactly nothing that Israel can do that will turn this from a defeat to a victory. In, in strategic terms, Israel was defeated by Hamas, period. And it doesn't matter, and forgive me if it sounds crude, it, it doesn't matter if Israel levels the entire city of Gaza or if Israel kills tens of thousands of Palestinians, it will not balance the equation. So um, thank you very much um, for this very, very uh, disturbing but but thorough kind of examination about how, how much this is um, reshaping the whole strategic environment for Israel at the moment, both regionally but also in terms of the, the, the relationship with the Palestinians and the politics with different parts of, of the Palestinian leadership. Um, one of the things that will no doubt happen, though, after the conflict stops is, is that they're going to have to think about who to work with. As you said before, there's been a relationship both with, with Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank and an attempt to, to try and calm things down there through an accommodation with them, and, and then the sort of parallel process um, in um, in Gaza with uh, with Hamas and uh, and that, those things kind of separated from the from, from the regional dynamics and and that's all been sort of collapsed by uh, by what's happened now. Um, Hugh, you've been working very very uh, hard over the last period of time trying to understand the dynamics within the Palestinian community and the ex- the extent to which one might be able to to think about. Uh, you know, re- developing kind of different partners here. But if the the Israeli response is to to sh- to wipe out Hamas or to try and wipe out Hamas in Gaza, um, 
what happens to that strategy? Who, who, uh, um, you know, what, what, what what's going to take the place of the sort of paradigm which which Iran was was describing? Thanks, Mark. That's a tough question. <clears throat> Let me start off by just echoing what Iran said. Uh, Iran said no one is excluded from from this deep sense of shock and grief about what's happening. And I think that certainly holds true for, for us and for Europeans. <clears throat> In terms of where, in terms of where we go next, Iran also, you know, talked about the, the, these strategic failures, and and these strategic failures hold with regards to a number of files or a number of, of, of aspects of what is happening. There's clearly the, the Israeli aspect, the, the political failure, uh, security, military failure. You know, there's a. I think we need to admit there is also an international failure here, and I think that is in part due to a collective. Uh, addiction to to a set of illusions, this illusion that somehow um, the the reality that is happening now in Israel Palestine, or that has been happening in Israel Palestine for, for several years now, is in some way a sustainable status quo. That uh, unfortunately today, it's the the really hard um, truth of the matter is that there is no sustainable uh, status quo um, in terms of the the collapse of the broader. Uh, international diplomatic architecture that was initially um, and ostensibly meant to resolve the conflict, but that has also now failed to manage the conflict. Um, you know, I th- likewise, there's also uh, an illusion of stability when it comes to what's happening on the Palestinian side of things, when it comes to what is happening uh, in within the Palestinian political system and the Palestinian national movement. Um, for for certainly for the past few months, uh, perhaps a year, there was a sense that, uh, and this was a, again an illusion that Gaza remained somehow semi-stable despite repeated uh, rounds of escalation. That nonetheless it could be managed uh, and kept within a, I suppose, a limbo between open warfare and 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 peace and an end to Israel's uh, 15-year blo- blockade. That again is an illusion that we're seeing the the sad truth of the, the sad truth that cannot happen. And likewise, I think another illusion is that uh, within the West Bank, that the the Palestinian Authority in its current uh, capacity can maintain calm. Um, that is also, I'm afraid, an illusion. Now, the reasons for that are multifaceted and would require a podcast in itself. Um, there is an international responsibility in that regard. You know, Europe, the EU, is a principal funder of the Palestinian Authority. There is also Palestinian agency, but the reality is that there is now a Palestinian Authority led by Mahmoud Abbas um, that has very little credibility in the eyes of most Palestinians. That is out of step with where most Palestinians see their national struggle going, which is, uh, you know, there is a shift in Palestinian public opinion um, towards support for armed resistance, not because. Palestinians are addicted to violence, of course not, but because Palestinians are, are reacting in, to the realities that they see, to the, the collapse of political horizons, um, and to the inability of uh, the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, to deliver change, to deliver an end of conflict um, through, through negotiations. And so to finally answer your question, Mark, well, you have uh, a, a Palestinian inter- uh, interlocutor um, that does not represent Palestinians, that at the moment has um, absolutely no bearing uh, on what's happening in Gaza, and that cannot in any functional manner replace Hamas as governors of Gaza if Israel was to ever uh, fully eradicate them, which I think 
this reason to believe Israel will not succeed in doing that. But even if it could, to believe that Mahmoud Abbas could ride back into Gaza on the back of a Merkava tank is, is another illusion. Um, so in terms of where we go next, in some ways, the policy prescriptions uh, haven't changed. But I think they've become much more difficult to fulfill. So at the core of it is how one actually uh, reforms, relegitimizes the Palestinian national movement, which includes you know, looking at the role of the Palestinian Authority and how to to reinvigorate that, how you can have a more representative Palestinian leadership that can speak for all Palestinians. That may result in a more robust Palestinian strategy that's a bit more difficult for, for Europeans in terms of diplomatic political strategy, but that nonetheless is something that can be engaged with and dissuade other aspects of Palestinian society from engaging in armed violence. Doing that, no, that, doing that now within the context of what is happening how, like, is, is very, going to be very, very difficult. There still will need to be Palestinian reconciliation, reunification at some point. Hamas is going nowhere. Even if it's eradicating Gaza, it will remain in the West Bank elsewhere. So the challenges and the policies are to a certain extent the same, but we are now in a much, much, much more difficult place. And how one actually moves forward in a, in a concrete manner is, um, I think, uh, something that a lot of people will be struggling with now. Can I respond to that? Of course, yeah. First of all, as you said, it's going to take much more than half an hour podcast to do justice to these very complex issues. Uh, but to try and kind of uh, cram it all into a, a short few minutes, I, I would say the following. The one thing I disagree with you about is the uh, statement that the policy options remain the same. I don't think that's the case, and I'm convinced it must not be the case. And we must wean ourselves from thinking in the old terms, because the mindset, first of all, because in reality, circumstances have changed in such a dramatic way that it simply makes no sense to simply continue thinking in the same old terms in terms of policy options. Secondly, I can assure you that in Israel, at least some are not going to think in the old terms. Now, I'm not sure this includes Prime Minister Netanyahu, but I am sure it includes others on all sides of the political spectrum, let's put it this way. And we, I do believe that beyond the really horrible consequences and unprecedented national tragedy, awaits an opportunity, as is always the case, as, as we professionals know. And the opportunity is... To, through a very, very long um, and complex diplomatic and military and economic process to shape uh, a new path for the future of Israel-Palestine and perhaps even beyond that. Now, uh, admittedly, this is a, a very tall order, but I think both, first of all, as my, uh, you know, speaking as a professional who's been following this and engaged in this issue for, for decades. Um, I do believe there is such an opportunity. Secondly, I think we must prevent, as much as we can, a number of very bad outcomes that can come out of this. First one, of course, is a regional war with the involvement of Hezbollah and Iran, uh, and the probability of which has just rose significantly. And um, as you may or may not be aware, Hezbollah has already issued threats in a sophisticated way via a third party that if and when Israel invades Gaza, Hezbollah will invade Israel. And he, it's already sending signals, kinetic signals, 
yesterday and today. Today there was a small faction probably coordinated with Hezbollah, uh, a number of, uh, of commandos uh, infiltrating into Israel uh, of Palestinian identity from Lebanon. It's the kind of tricks that Hezbollah has been playing. And yesterday they shot a number of mortars across the border and so on. So they're already sending signals trying to deter uh, Israel and kind of make it clear that they are willing to join if Israel does or takes certain steps that Israel threatens to take. So um, mission number one for, and I think the Europeans can be a part of that, should be a part of that, is preventing regional deterioration. We know that the Americans are very much on board. If you followed the presidential statement of President Biden the other day, it was all about deterring uh, third parties from entering the conflict. And then he sent the uh, aircraft carrier in, uh, and with another armada to the uh, um, eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And the American signals are very clear. Stay out. Signals to Iran, Hezbollah, and others. And I think the Europeans should quickly join that. So it's important not to allow this to escalate into a regional war. And as always, there are parties on all sides that are interested in that. So it's, a, it's, an, it's important that Europe makes a stand. So uh, that's, that's mission number one. Mission, mission number two is to start thinking about um, creative, new, strategic, bold policy options for a new order, not only between Israel and Gaza, but between Israel and the Palestinians. Also taking into consideration the new willingness by the Saudis to be involved in uh, normalization with Israel and in rearranging the strategic landscape in the Middle East. Admittedly, um, circumstances on certain levels are inconvenient. First and foremost, the political timeline in the States um, and also the political havoc in Israel and the utter mistrust that any cabinet led by Netanyahu will have uh, from the Israeli public. But we need to work with what we have. Um, and can, can I ask? Can I? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Can I ask Aaron? Aaron, just something on that. I mean, t- talking about kind of domestic Israeli public opinion and political opinion. Wh- where do you see that going now, Iran? I mean, because obviously we've had a kind of right-wing Netanyahu government that that has kind of pushed the envelope in in, in terms of. Palestinian policy. Um, these attacks are obviously going to kind of push Israeli public opinion in a direction. H- how do you see the mood in Israel and the political space um, to, to do anything constructive um, along the lines of what you're talking about, when obviously the kind of immediate focus will be this huge military operation against, um, against Gaza? Yeah, well, first of all, I wouldn't say obviously about anything now, because really we're in a completely new landscape and all bets are off. You are correct that there is obviously a huge wave of rage uh, across Israel and a demand for revenge. And Netanyahu even used the word revenge in his first public appearance after, or what you think it was yesterday, as if revenge is a substitute for policy. Um, and in terms of the overall uh, lands- political landscape in Israel, as I'm sure our listeners are aware, there are already some talks between Netanyahu and Benny Gantz about an emergency, forming an emergency war cabinet, uh, where Gantz and Eisenkot, the former uh, IDF chief of uh, general staff, will join. 
as ministers without portfolio and all sorts of uh, improvisations under fire to somehow enlarge the legitimacy of, of the cabinet and the government. But I think also there is an enormous uh, amount of frustration and anger at Netanyahu and his current cabinet. It was there before these, this horrific um, attack by Hamas, and it's obviously much worse now. So Netanyahu may sustain the first kind of immediate wave after this, but I think the overall sense is that he is finished politically, and he will he and his uh, uh, co-conspirators and those responsible for this horrific national disaster will have to go. Exactly when, how, and who will replace them is a different question. But they are uh, dead politicians walking. Um, that's, that's the sense on the one hand. On the other hand, as you correctly point out, there is a demand for a strong uh, military reaction. So, Julie, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Um, lots of different angles, um, which we, we should cover a bit. But can you talk a bit more about what you think this political and military reaction is going to be? Because let's talk about a sort of ground offensive, um, you know, in Gaza. First of all, you know, one of the unprecedented um, um, facets of this new situation is the number of POWs and hostages that Hamas captured, including women and children, uh, lots of civilians and some soldiers. Uh, and it's also rumored that they have some very uh, high-level IDF officers. Uh, the overall number is 130. That's what I heard, which is, you know, uh, just to say unprecedented is uh, the, the understatement of the century. And there is simply very little capacity in Israel to deal with uh, such a completely unexpected eventuality. It's going to take time. But to try and kind of put it crudely again for our listeners, the, the two major policy options that Israel now has vis-a-vis -vis these POWs and kidnappees are obvious. Either negotiate, which Israel doesn't like to do, and its history of negotiating with Hamas on this issue, uh, shall we say, is uh, infamous in, in, uh, by and large uh, within the Israeli public, the so-called uh, Gilad Shalit affair, where for one kidnapped Israeli soldier, thousands of uh, prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, Hamas prisoners were released, including two of the leaders of the current military attack by Hamas. So it's, uh, it's going to be a very, very, very uh, high toll for any Israeli government, let alone this Israeli government, let alone this prime minister with the record of the previous deal, to go for another deal. And uh, this is something that Netanyahu is uh, running away from, and he's not mentioning this issue, and he's almost denying the existence of those 130 victims. And it will have an impact on anything Israel does consider in terms of military reaction. So, so that one option would be to negotiate. The other option would be uh, for Israelis to relive the experience that Europeans and Americans lived with Daesh, ISIS prisoners being executed live in all sorts of 
horrific ways. This is something that the Israeli society is unprepared for. No prime minister would like this to happen. But we have a minister in our government, Minister Smutrich, who some of our listeners may be familiar with, who already said publicly that as far as he's concerned, the strategic discussion of retaliation and, uh, you know, modus operandi vis-a-vis Gaza should disregard the hostages and, and prisoners. And we already have some 800 casualties, so we'll have 930. I'm not saying I'm not saying this is a popular notion in Israel. I'm just saying it's coming from a high-level minister in the cabinet. So, uh, and I'm starting with this just to to kind of give you a sense of how complex the deliberation is going to be in the cabinet in whichever composition on policy options. Because obviously, once Israel penetrates Gaza in a massive ground operation, Hamas, if those prisoners are not released, they will be used as human shields and as, you know, just like ISIS did with, with uh, its prisoners. Can I just, before we go on to the, because I, I do want to bring Julian in on the regional stuff, but just one more thing on the kind of domestic side. You talked about this idea of a government of national unity with, with guns joining, and, but pre- Presumably, one of the, the conditions for them to join a government would be for, for Smotrich and Bengvir to be relieved of their posts because they... Well, no. No, allow me to interrupt you. No, they're not making this demand anymore. From my perspective, it's very unfortunate. I think it's a mistake, both strategically and politically, but that's their position. They're not making this demand. Um, and it's going to be the same coalition with the addition of uh, of guns, Eisenkot, and a number of others. That's what's at, at play right now, okay? It may change, things are fluid, but that's where it stands right now. But I just want to quickly go back to the policy options because the obviously with all its complexity, the uh, POWs and hostages issue is just one aspect of it. Uh, the, the overall dilemma and the overall policy options are going to be... Um, Yes, whether or not to engage in a massive uh, infiltration, invasion into Gaza with the strategic goal of uh, essentially bringing the Hamas government down and annihilating Hamas's military and terror capabilities. Now, this is a very, very difficult mission to accomplish. As uh, Israelis know, both professionals and non-professionals, as Americans know from their experience in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, and Europeans and you know NATO forces know as well from their unique experiences. I'm not saying it's completely impossible. I'm saying it's extremely difficult. It's going to take months at best, and I would define it as an und- as a never-ending mission because it will have to be a reoccupation, complete and total reoccupation of Gaza by Israel, um, taking out all Hamas personnel capabilities, uh, missiles, factories, and so on and so forth, and of course somehow instating a different Palestinian government. Yeah. And that last part is something that you will not hear an Israeli official mention. And who would they bring in? Would it, it would basically they try and get the Palestinian authorities to administer Gaza as well as the, the short. The short answer is no. 
not this government and not this prime minister, because they're absolutely and totally against the notion of a Palestinian state and the rejoining of Gaza and the West Bank, the whole notion that I mentioned before. Yeah. is about separating those two areas and making sure there is no real negotiations and there is no unified Palestinian leadership. Now, whether or not this will be re-examined, I, it may, but I suspect, again, as long as Netanyahu is prime minister, he's one of his uh, claims to fame is the annihilation of the nation, notion of a two-state solution in the Oslo Accords. And I don't think that's going to change. So um, the, they're going to aim, and if you listen carefully to what Netanyahu is saying and what Netanyahu is not saying, at least so far, he didn't even speak about collapsing the Hamas government. What he spoke about and what he's speaking about so far is neutralizing Hamas's military capabilities. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence. He wants to avoid as much as he can the debate and the action of toppling Hamas government uh, and, re and instating a different government. Because he knows that, you know, the, the option of, uh, of the reunification of leaderships and territories between uh, Gaza and the West Bank is, is inevitably going to, to represent it, to, to raise its ugly head from his perspective and ruin his own notion of uh, ending the Israeli-Arab conflict without paying any yeah, Israeli-Palestinian price. So uh, I think as far as Netanyahu is concerned, he's going to look for a massive military blow. He's going to lower the threshold of uh, using all sorts of military power with respect to uh, international law. And that's already almost out in the open. You saw today that they shut down completely all water and food and energy supplies to Gaza. Um, and this, this will be, I think, the kind of overall spirit. Now let's bomb the hell out of them, retaliate you know, in ways and means that were never seen before, exact a tremendous toll in human lives and in infrastructures uh, in an unprecedented way, and thus allegedly balance the equation. As I said before, I don't think anything of that sort will ever balance the equation. But it may, it may very well be that this will be the decision of the Israeli cabinet. Now, what, just to close, I, I want to just say what are the other, the, the main other option that I would like the Israeli cabinet to consider, and I would urge the Europeans, Americans, and so on to, to start building, is, um, yes, we need to understand, all of us, that things must, must change. We can no longer accept following what some of the stuff that you were saying at the beginning. We can no longer accept the kind of arrangements that we accepted so far in terms of the uh, conflict management scheme of Gaza. We're feeding Hamas with money and legitimacy and supply and so on in exchange for relative calm. And things need to change uh, dramatically in that respect. Um, ideally, or, or you know, it's better to try and change them in a way which will reconnect the Gaza and the West Bank, or at least open the way for a unified solution for Gaza and the West Bank and the overall Israeli-Palestinian problem with the assistance of regional powers such as Egypt, Jordan, but also, and that's the new element, the Saudis. Uh, and I think there is 
interesting potential there. Okay, great. Thanks, Aaron. We've been I've been letting you speak a lot because you're um in the middle of this and and it's really important to to get your perspective and it's been incredibly valuable. But I'd love to bring Julian in both to talk a bit more about the regional side but also we haven't mentioned Europe very much. Um, what do you think the sort of policy options are for, for Europeans in these circumstances? Um, Iran mentioned the, the role that Europeans could play in trying to deter regional escalation. But what do you think the other kind of big choices facing Europeans are at the moment? Thanks, Mark. And, and yeah, also kind of saddened to, to join the podcast on, on the back of, of this horrific violence. Um, let me just make one other comment before I get on to the region and, and the Europeans, um, Mark, which is to say that the one thing we actually haven't talked about at all as the Palestinians. Um, and I do think that, that obviously that needs to be part of this conversation um, in terms of, of the fact that this violence has not come out of a vacuum. Um, and obviously kind of Iran was talking about kind of a government policy that aimed at the kind of annihilation of, of, a, of a kind of the prospect of a Palestinian nation and, and the two-state solution. Um, and obviously kind of Palestinians have also been living under kind of horrific violence and, and, and kind of the, what many would call apartheid. So that that in no way justifies what, what has now unfolded in Israel in terms of the violence. But I think that does have to be part of the equation as we think through what happens next and, and how one tries to, to kind of navigate a better pathway as, as Iran were, was articulating. And, and clearly um, there is going to be an immense degree of um, violence now imposed on the Palestinian population, um, many of whom will be civilians and, and will die under that. So I think that very much has to be part of, of, of how we kind of factor what, what happens next. Um, in terms of the region, Mark, look, I think, you know, Iran very much articulated the kind of dangers of a wider ex explosion. Um, there are there are obviously allegations that Iran has been involved in, in helping to plan this. Clearly, Iran has a relationship with Hamas, even if I don't necessarily think that they were kind of directly involved in instigating this. But there is a risk that, that a conflict does erupt with Hezbollah in the north. Um, Kind of transforming this into a, a multi-front war. I don't think anyone wants that, not the Israelis, not Hezbollah, not Iran, but things are very fragile. Um, and if you do see um, a land incursion, significant deaths, if you see Israeli attacks on, on Palestinian targets in Lebanon, anything could happen. I think we'd really be kind of entering even more dangerous um uh, uh, even more dangerous moment at that point. So I think, as Aaron said, clearly there needs to be a European prioritization, perhaps because this is somewhere where they can make a difference to, to try and avert that outcome. You know, Europe does have channels of communication to, to Iran, uh, to Hezbollah. It's involved in the kind of UNIFIL um, uh, UN monitoring mission along the Israeli um, uh, Lebanese border. I mean, using those channels, working with regional partners that also are, are talking to the Iranians, whether it's the Saudis or the Emiratis or others, to press really hard to ensure that this doesn't go wider um, is critically important at this stage because we'd really be in a messy circumstances then. Dealing with the bigger and much more difficult question of how we navigate kind of what are, what, 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 where we go now in Israel-Palestine is, I think, immensely difficult. Obviously, Europeans have been wanting to and have been showing kind of immense solidarity with Israel at this moment. They want to get behind them. They want to, they want to kind of back Israel's right to, to self-defense. But I think clearly, um, you know, Europeans need to be thinking about what that looks like. Um, you know, how does international humanitarian law fit into this mix? How do we avert an outcome that kind of uh, feeds and, 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 and kind of creates even more of the kind of social economic collapse and militancy that, that, that has created the rise of Hamas and so forth? 
how do we kind of work out a, a, a new model of engagement with the Israelis and the Palestinians to prevent this ongoing cycle? Do we, and, and you know, you know, there's been talk today already. You know, we're talking on 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 Monday afternoon about the Europeans withdrawing support from all of the Palestinians. You know, we've had EU commissioners coming out saying that we're not going to do that. Other member states have said that we're going to we're going to kind of review and, and stop European support to the Palestinians. I think that would be a huge mistake in terms of helping and 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 kind of propping up those Palestinians who are trying to work around Hamas, who are trying to survive, who are an alternative. And and, and actually that would kind of be a European a European hand in kind of feeding again this kind of social economic collapse that feeds militancy. So I think these are some of the dilemmas that the Europeans have to wrestle with now. I don't think there are any immediate answers. I think the immediate priority needs to be kind of containing the degree of violence that happens going forward, preventing a, a regional explosion. And then trying to work out how we reconnect the kind of Israeli-Palestinian track to everything else that's been happening in the region. And we kind of move away from this illusion that we can kind of decenter the Palestinians and, and make peace at, at their ex- expense. Unfortunately, we're running out of time on, on this um, podcast. Um, and I think Julian just raised about two years worth of uh, of, of perpetual of permanent podcast worth of questions in that last answer I, I think that maybe we should call a day for this discussion and come back to it as the situation evolves i'm really grateful to you Iran, for for joining us amidst all the the chaos and grief that that you and so many other people have been going through over the last period of, of time and i hope we can stay in touch as the situation evolves we normally end the podcast with a bookshelf segment but it doesn't really feel right on on this occasion but i would uh, recommend the listeners uh, read the piece by by julian and hugh on our website called how european should respond to the hamas offensive against israel and we will send you iran and, and other people in israel our solidarity in this really awful circumstances i hope we can come back as, as the situation evolves and that um that there'll be some light at the the end of this horrific uh, tunnel which we're which um the the region and, and which Israelis have been have been plunged into by these senseless attacks. Thank you very much for for, for joining us. We uh, will attach links to publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. Uh, but for now, from Hugh, Julian, Eran, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.